Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Happy New Year to all. We return to our weekly schedule of talks. It is the 6th of January 2020 and this is episode 144. On today's podcast, Dr Toby Haggith, Senior Curator in the Department of Second World War and Mid-20th Century Conflict at the Imperial War Museum, talks about his research into the 1916 Battle of the Somme film. Toby, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and, in particular, the Battle of the Somme film? Well, I've been working at the Imperial War Museum since 1988, and my first job was film loans officer, which meant arranging, lending films from the collection to universities and colleges, at WFA groups, etc., etc. And at that stage we also were expected to occasionally go out and take the films and introduce them. And one of the films that I introduced on a number of occasions was Battle of the Somme. And at that stage, as you probably remember, Tom, the version that was provided by the IWM was either on 16mm, well, on 16mm with no soundtrack, or for a while on VHS with no soundtrack. So, uh, and I I remember one of the most memorable occasions I screened it was um, was in Belfast and then Derry. And on both occasions I, I did quite a lot of work on the the local impact of the film and that's what sort of drew me into the film I got very interested in how the film sort of engaged with audiences and in that case in Belfast and Derry you know you'd have screening adverts for screenings of the Battle of the Somme right next to lists of casualties of local regiments who'd served at the battle so there was a very strong conjunction between the film and the political and you know military events that had happened so that really drew me into it, I think. So before we actually get on to the film itself, can you tell me about the state of public cinema before the Great War? Well, by the First World War, the cinema was the most popular form of entertainment in Britain. I mean, there were something like 4,500 screening venues. By 1916, about 18 million cinema tickets were being sold per week. And there was a, really a cinema or a screening venue, I would say. And I should say that because cinemas were only in their sort of purpose-built form, were only beginning to be built. So certain films were still being shown in musicals, opera houses, etc. But there was really a screening venue in almost every community in, in the British Isles. One of the reasons why film was so popular was because it was very cheap. The average cinema ticket was about 4p, 4 pennies. You know, not only was film... It also, I'd say that the typical film programme, or the typical film ran for sort of one to three reels, which is about 30 minutes. And you had a mixed programme that would involve various different components. The other thing that was really important, or is a notable aspect of film at that time, was the importance of of music. Music was absolutely crucial to an audience's appreciation of film. In fact, fact, I was reading something the other day, because I'm doing some work on Battle of Arras, the last of the three big campaign films. And there was some comments about the fact that uh, in some cinemas, people went purely for the music, really. And in fact, and most cinemas had a, well, all cinemas had a resident musician, often three or four musicians, and bigger cinemas could have as many as 18 or even 40 performers. There was a cinema in the Great Avenue in Belfast, the Picture House, which had, a, had an orchestra of 40 performers, which I, was astounding. I suppose, just to confirm and, and make the obvious point, that obviously film was silent at this time, hence yes. needed an orchestra. 
yeah, film, film was film was shot mute. You know, it, it had to have sound effects or, or, or music and an orchestra to provide accompaniment. Now, coming on to the Battle of the Film, what does it depict and what is it about? Well, the Battle of the Somme covers the opening stages of the Somme campaign. And that, that st- stage, as we all know, was called Battle of Albert. Filming started on the 25th of June and went on to the 9th of July. So it's 15 days of filming and it covers the artillery offensive or the, the, the artillery bombardment, the initial bombardment, the infantry offensive on the 1st of July, the immediate aftermath of that offensive, um, scenes in the casualty clearing stations, scenes of prisoners being taken up, taken from the battlefield, and then scenes of war booty, captured trenches. And finally, the closing stage sort of shows troops moving off to advance further into the German lines. It's got a very simple structure. And how was it made? It was made by two, two cameramen, previously newsreel, commercial newsreel cameraman who had been employed by the War Office's Topical Film Committee, which was a kind of commercial body that was set up by the War Office to manage official filming. Now, they, they had been commercial newsreel cameramen, but there was an attempt by the War Office and the Army to inculcate them into the military ethos. So they wore a British Army uniform. They were always what's called conducted or accompanied by a military intelligence officer, usually a man called Captain Faunthorpe. They were guided or transported around by a British Army vehicle accompanied by a a bloke who would help carry the gear. They were billeted by the army. They were fed by the army. So, I mean, I don't like to use the word embedded because that's not really the right term, but they were were heavily controlled by the British military. You know, the the war office wanted to use them, but they weren't going to let them film anything that they they didn't want them to film. And then, so they compiled about 80,000, 8,000 feet of film they brought that raw footage back to London and screened it on the 12th of July. So the rushes were filmed on the 12th of July. Editing then took place under a man called Charles Urban, who was uh, an American filmmaker and producer who'd already had much success and been involved in Britain Prepared, the sort of four-hour epic that was the first British official film, and accompanied by or assisted by Geoffrey Malins, who was one of the two cameramen who filmed on the Battle of the Somme. The other one was uh, John McDowell. They edited the film together and then there was a private preview screening on the 10th of August and then it was released in London on the 21st of August and nationwide on the 28th of August. So to cut a long long story short, from shooting to release was just about three months, which is very quick. My colleague Roger Smither or my former colleague Roger Smither often describes the film as more like a dispatches from the front, almost a bulletin. And if we think of it today in in the way we might think of a television broadcast or footage of, I don't know, Iraq, Afghanistan, it's it's somewhere between the newsreel report and what we might think of as a longer documentary piece like Panorama or something. It's a a very much an on-the-moment coverage, reportage of the battle. So what was the purpose of the film and... What did the authorities want to achieve by filming it? Well, one of the problems we have is the records for the film, production records as such, are very sparse. But we can get a good idea from pronouncements were made at the time when the film was released and also the film itself and comments in the the press. And I think the first thing we must consider is is the context in which this film was released. And I often think that's something we don't think about enough. 1915 and 16 had not been great years for the Allies, and 1916 was a particularly bad year for the British. Let's not forget the Battle of Jutland, the death of Kitchener, and the Easter Rising. You know, body blows to a nation at any time, and really, in in many senses, kind of undermined the sense of confidence that the Britain might have had about itself. And also, 
1916, the, the war begins to be directed directly to the civilians of Britain. So you've got the, the U-boat campaign, you've got Zeppelin raids, things that really began to make people feel vulnerable, directly impacted by the war. And also we know that, well, we can't say there was a wave of pacifism in Britain. There was indications that the British were not happy with the way the war was being run. So there's big demonstrations against cons military conscription. There's peace ballots even. What I think this indicates is that the state couldn't assume the sort of automatic support, wholehearted support for the war effort that had been the First World War. So I think the basic idea is that we've got to we've got to make a film that's going to solidify support behind the war effort. And Lloyd George talks about that when he introduces the film and says something on the lines of, you know, the stoicism and bravery of the men at the front will, will form a bond with the people at the front. So I think what they wanted to do was kind of, as I say, solidify support for the war effort in a time where things weren't going that well. Having said that, I think there must have also been an assumption by the British military that the campaign was going to be a success. Otherwise, you wouldn't stick two cameramen right in the front line to record it. So there's some confidence that this, this campaign is going to be successful. And any doubts that have been about the way the war is being managed by the military and the government are going to be swept aside. So that's the, that's the main reason for the film. And then there are two really important subsidiary reasons, which I, I also want to tease out. The first one is about making munitions. The film is peppered with comments in the intertitle that refer to the work of the munitions workers in building shells and guns. And we know that, again, the film is made in the wake of the shell crisis. And it's really important that the British military munitions workers are given every encouragement to sort of bend their backs to the wheel and build it, but make as many shelves as possible. And you see constant references in the press to the fact that this film will help encourage the war workers to do even to even greater efforts. Now, interestingly, I've just come across some screenings that were held in Sheffield in the one of the munitions factories in Sheffield, where screenings of Battle of the Somme were shown one one after another to massive groups of munitions workers in the in the workshop itself, uh, and the film was given a simultaneous uh, explanation by a man who'd, who'd been in the Highland Light Infantry, who'd come back from the front to describe the film to the workers and encourage them even more about their great efforts. So that's a key effort in the film. And it's not that the films that had been produced before by the British military and the War Office weren't propaganda films. There were propaganda films in the broader sense of the word, word, but they didn't have that specific aim at reaching the civilians. So, for example, there's a film in the very first official pictures series, the sort of newsreels, where they refer to the munitions. And here you see soldiers unpacking munitions, but it's seen really as just something that the unit does. When you see the film, when you see the packs of shells being unloaded by soldiers in the Battle of the Somme, the intertitle says, thanks to the British workers, blah, 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 blah. So the whole so there's a, a need to orientate what's happening at the front right to the needs of the people at home. So I think we might almost describe this as one of the first really focused propaganda films that aims at the people on the home front specifically, not rather than just in general terms. They're saying, well, this is what the British Army are doing in, on the Western Front. You know, this is interesting. This is what you need to know. This is saying we're linking these two areas, if you like. So how popular was the film and how many people saw it and what was its impact? I suppose a subsidiary, subsidiary question would be, did it achieve what Lloyd George and co wanted it to achieve? Well, the film was incredibly popular. I mean, one estimate has been 
that it was 22 million people seen by the, the film was seen by 22 million people. And given the population was about 43 million people at the time, Britain and Ireland, that's a massive amount. Now, some people have subsequently queried that film, that, that statistics, I should say. But I still think it's very credible. And, and what, one, what one finds in the reports of the film is time and time again, people commenting on films in screenings all around the country. And I've examined many of these screenings. You see queues, queues forming around the block, packed houses, people going back to see the film seconds and third times. And the other thing that's interesting, the cinema industry was going through a bit of a tough time in the First World War because sort of the war disrupted normal cinema practices. And they also had this taxation on the seats. They absolutely made the most of this film to maximise their, their revenue, as it were, their ticket sales. And because they could be sure of the popularity of this film, it wasn't unusual to find two cinemas in one small town showing the film at the same time. That generally would not have happened. When it was shown in Sheffield, seven of the cinemas in Sheffield ran the film at exactly the same time. It was absolutely massive. Now, as to its impact on the audiences, all the reports in the press would report on how people were really captivated by the film. They were totally engaged. They followed it closely. They listened to the film. They cheered. They clapped. They cried. They were... I mean, cinemas were always, in the First World War era, a voluble space. You know, these were rowdy places. For Battle of the Somme, the people engaged with the film even more closely. Now, as you may know, there's a famous moment in the film, which is actually, strictly speaking, a reenactment or a, a, a dra dramatisation of the over-the-top scene, which we now know was, you know, was not actuality, as it were. However, everyone was convinced that it was actuality. And people engaged with that moment in the film profoundly. You know, the audience would be either cry out or they would be stunned to silence. And they really felt, they really felt that moment. And I think one of the, the paradoxes of the film is that it shows these unprecedented scenes of casualties and the dead, not just the German dead, but the British dead. And one might have been concerned that that might lead to a wave of pacifism or even reluctance of men to come forward and to join the forces, not in Britain, I should say, but also in other countries where conscription hadn't been introduced. But in fact, what the film seemed to have done was actually solidify support for the men at the front, just as had been hoped by Lloyd George and the others who were behind the film. So you see, again, I was reading an article about this recently in the local press, quoting these comments that had been made by the Dean of Durham that the film shouldn't be shown because it includes these tasteless scenes of British dead. And they said, no, no, that's completely wrong. We know that loads of people have died. We know that men are being sacrificed. And we want to see this because we need to share in the sacrifice. We need to, sh and that's a way of showing solidarity. So in fact, I believe it solidified support for the, for the British armed forces. Also, one can imagine the film would create a climate in which it would be even more difficult to resist the, to be pacifist, if you like, because of the self-sacrifice that was seen in the film. Apart from people's interest in the military aspects of the film, the thing that strikes people most is the self-sacrifice and the cheerfulness of the Tommies. Time and time again, reviewers, people in letters are, are, are in awe of the bravery, the stoicism and the cheerfulness of the British Tommies in what is, after all, terrible, uh, terrible conditions and conditions which weren't familiar to ordinary civilians. And I think it really what did succeed in really bucking up support for the British Armed Forces. Now, the other thing is, of course, the other immediate impact of the film is the success of this film leads to a successor film, Battle of the Ankh and Advance of the Tanks, which covers the autumn and winter stages of the Somme campaign, which was 
probably not as successful a Battle of the Somme, but nearly so. And then finally, the third film, uh, The German Retreat and the Battle of Arras, which I'm working on at the moment, which again wasn't quite as successful, but was, was, was successful. And then also there was the international impact of the film. This film was seen all over the world and raised thousands and thousands of pounds for British war charities. What about the impact in, in post-Easter Rising Ireland? Is there any indication it had a positive or negative impact there? Well, that's a really interesting question because I think it's quite clear that the film was used deliberately to try and boost support for the armed forces at a very difficult time. And the film was certainly successful in Ireland, as it had been elsewhere. And interestingly, everyone went to see the film, and even people in the Republic, and there even Republicans and Sinn Féiners would go and see the film and were interested in it. So it had a kind of military interest to them. While they might have not liked to see sort of scenes of British successful arms, they were interested in it from a military perspective. But certainly the film did very well in Ireland and was very, very popular. And I also think it was definitely used to try and if you like, boost support for the British at a time when things were not going well, and also boost support for for recruiting. Because one of the things the Irish Times said when the film came, came out was, this film is absolutely vital, and let's hope it encourages the sons of far Irish farmers to buck up their ideas and join the forces. But um, one of the, the, the reasons for the purposes of the film, I talked a lot about munitions, the other thing I think we should talk about is the importance of the film as its impact on, on getting men into the forces. Now, it's particularly important overseas in that, because as we know, in many territories overseas, well, in most territories overseas, there is no conscription. And in places like Australia and Ireland, they didn't bring conscription because it was so controversial. So the film was really considered important in these countries in, in gaining more recruits, particularly after the terrible attrition there had been in the Somme campaign. But the other place I think it's really become important, and I hadn't thought of this before, was in Britain. Now, not obviously to get men uh, to join up per se, because conscription had been introduced, but to get men to answer their obligations of their call-up. Because what I hadn't realised was that there were many men, perhaps as many as 93,000 men, went, were tardy in, in following up their call-up papers or even went on the missing list altogether. And to support this, at least three of the papers I've looked at for local screenings that covered Battle of the Somme also included, and in one case on exactly the same page, the Eastern Advertiser for Maidstone, a long list of up to 90 or 100 men, the names of the men and their addresses, and a request for confidential, confidential information about their whereabouts. Now, I think it's, it's too much of a coincidence not to see that the film would be considered as very useful as applying a little bit of psychological pressure on men who basically were shirking their call-up papers. So what motivated individuals to go and see it? Why did so many people go? Well, the first thing is they are hoping to see their loved ones on the screen. You know, and local cinemas made a lot of this. So you'd put a poster outside and saying, you'll see the Bucks and the Buffs in this. You'll see the Lancashire Regiment. Our local boys in the appear in the film. So much the same as, you know, people would want to see films of their loved ones, men who served in Afghanistan or Iraq. Exactly the same. People went to the cinema to try and see their loved ones on screen. And we also know that men would write to their loved ones or, and say, I've been cinematographed, come and see us on the screen. So that's the basic thing. I think the other thing is that it was considered a national duty. It was a patriotic gesture to go and see the film. The King encouraged everyone to see the film. Lloyd George encouraged everyone to see the film. And, you know, this was made the most of in all the press. So it was considered a patriotic gesture to go and see the film. This is a moment of your solidarity with the men serving at the front. And then I think the other thing is that the film quickly gained a reputation and people wanted to see it. So for all those reasons, the film had a great deal of weight 
in the community and pressure almost on people who want to go and see the film. And they were captivated by it. Was there any parental guidance at all for the film? Uh, no, no, there wasn't. I mean, people would say, OK, it's maybe not for children, but it's not a bad thing that children see it either. So it was felt that people really kind of took the attitude. It contained some dreadful scenes, but this is the truth. And we already know this is happening. So we need to see it. We need to share somehow what the people, what the men are really experiencing. And the other thing to say is that one of the selling points of the film was often made to people was that actually, if you want to understand what the Western Front is like, you should go and see this film. And, it, and people say, reviewers would say, you will understand the course of the battle and the course of the war much better if you actually watch this film. And I, for me, it was a kind of visual glossary of what the trenches were like. We kind of always assume that the British are very warlike people, fully understand military things. Well, let's not forget, up until the First World War, the British Army was a small professional unit, mainly serving colonial wars of about 120,000 men or so. Suddenly you've got close to 4 million men in arms and families all over the British Isles are affected directly by what the First World War means. But they still don't have any conception of what, what the Western Front is like or what a trench is, you know, what it, what it looks like to carry 36 pounds of kit, what a roll of barbed wire is, etc. And people found that sort of information that the film really provides excellently, very valuable. And do you think, in a way, it was, quotes realistic? I know it's a really difficult thing to, you know, maybe put in, but did it portray the real nature of the, of, of the fighting and the real nature of the conditions in which men fought? I, I think it did. And I think no film that, that the British have ever produced about warfare has ever, has ever been quite so honest. I mean, that's a paradox in the film. And we, one of the questions you said was, do you think it's an information film or a propaganda film? Well, I'd say it's definitely a propaganda film, but it also contains not just information, but documentary elements, documentary elements in the way we think of documentary, which is a format which is quite journalistic, which is semi-independent and critical and critical in the sense of not criticizing, but being critical and observant and thoughtful about something. And I think the reason for that is that the film is backed or produced in this strange devolved structure, which the British devised for official filmmaking. In most of the combatant nations, films were made by an organization within the military. There were military cameramen, there were military editors, it was all a military film. This film, the War Office decided that, no, no, we're gonna have this slightly strange devolved structure where we will, the film will be produced by a quasar, by a commercial organization working for us. And so what that means is you've got cameramen who although are ostensibly extremely patriotic and they were, and they want to portray the British Army in the best light. They also have got journalistic instincts. And so they film things that you wouldn't necessarily get an official cameraman filming. So, for example, the scenes of the dead, particularly the British dead, or the scenes of burying men in unmarked graves, mass graves, right next to the line, right, right next to the lines. That would never be shown by a British cameraman, British military cameraman. That would never be filmed. Rarely is it ever filmed in IWM's collection. And it would not be shown to the British. That just not is just not our culture. So you get... The scene, the candid scenes of the dead. And the other thing I think is really striking is this film is about the soldiers. You very rarely see officers in this film. There's actually only one colonel in the whole film, general, or one general, I said General Delisle. All of the others are soldiers. They get, they are, when you take, if you want to take away an image from this film, it's the, the ordinary soldier, the infantryman, the other ranker. And I, again, think that reflects the kind of commercial mindset of the cameraman who are very much thinking of a civilian audience. They're looking for the human angle. 
And that's what makes this film sort of slightly paradoxical. You've got this sort of slightly journalistic, almost populist approach to a military subject. And you've also got this rigid propaganda structure with the intertitles. So that's, I think it does contain some human elements. And also this is one of the things I found really interesting about the film is both in the First World War and in the many screenings I've attended recently, particularly around the centenary, you'll get both people who are, for want of better terms, quite militarist and quite um, patriotic, who will really like the film, really support it. But you'll also get people who go to screenings who are pacifist and who are still who are pacifist today, express pacifist leanings. And they find the film speaks to them as well. So it speaks to people who are both supportive of a film which presents the British army in its best light. And also people who say, you know what, what this film does, it shows the pity of war, the tragedy of war because the film speaks to them as well. And that's, I think, the sort of thing that makes the film always so relevant, is it has this paradoxical element within it. And finally, Toby, where can people learn more about your research? Well, I've written a few things about it, which can be found. But, you know, we we often do... You can w- come and watch the film in the First World War cinema. It's run all the time. There's the, the IWM's DVD, which is... There's some pieces by me and Roger and various other people... And, you know, I often give talks about the film and I'm very happy to present it if, you know, if people are interested and, and talk more about what I've done on it or what I know about it. Toby, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...